welcome everyone to episode two of the Lost Teams podcast. I'm your co-host, Anthony Cerdelli. Joining me today is the co-creator of our podcast, Andrew Lennox. Andrew, how's it going? Doing well. How are you doing, Anthony? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to get this thing underway. I'm going to talk a little bit of um, basketball, which has a little bit of a relation to hockey, and you're, you're going to talk football, right? The, uh, the CFL, right? Yeah. Actually, I'm going to be covering a team in the Canadian Football League. Well, a former team, I should say. That sounds pretty interesting. Uh, and I know they have kind of some, had an effect on uh, basically the NFL coming back to Baltimore, right? Uh, yes, definitely. So, yeah. So the, basically this team, they, they were, when they actually shut things down, were called the Baltimore Stallions. And they, yeah, they were averaging 30,000 fans a game. So that's while pretty they cool. were in the CFL, yeah. And then you know, I, I, the NFL thought they could come back. Yeah, I had no idea the CFL even had American teams, but uh, we will. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. <laughs> um, we'll get to that in a bit. I'll start off. I'm going to tell everyone today about the Toronto Huskies, which was the first one of the first NBA teams, uh, tracing all the way back to 1946, I believe, which is uh, a long time ago. So, uh, well, yeah, I think basketball was created or started in Canada. Yes, uh, sort of. I James think I did. Yeah, Naismith. Um, I think the first game was played in Massachusetts. Uh, uh, I see. When he got into, uh, when well, he was teaching a gym class, I think the story was he was teaching a gym class and it was raining outside. They needed something to do to get his energy out. So they put a couple peach boxes uh, up against like a raised track. This is what I found on Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, always reliable. Yeah, they didn't have any. Uh, they didn't have any holes in the in the in the box, so they just have to retrieve the ball. Eventually, they punched holes in the box, and uh, the ball would come out the bottom. And that's basically the the early iteration of basketball, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'll get started with the Huskies. The Toronto Huskies uh, started off actually their roots traced to hockey, which is pretty cool. Uh, I, I had no idea that the entire league, the entire NBA actually spawned out of uh, ownership of NHL teams who were looking to fill their, their arenas on nights when their teams weren't playing, uh, which blows my mind considering how much more popular the NBA is now than the NHL. It's kind of funny. Yeah, but that is crazy. And in the case of the Toronto Huskies, they were uh, first founded in 1946 uh, when another very familiar hockey name, Frank J. Selke, was representing oh, yeah. the Toronto Maple Leafs at a meeting of NHL owners who were looking to to start a b- professional basketball league. Basketball wow. was pretty. It was pretty young. How yeah. it's all it all ties in. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it, it's smart, um, but I think it's pretty funny that hockey ultimately created uh their main competitor so basketball was pretty young as a sport back then it had been around for maybe about 50 years uh, a little more james naismith uh, since james naismith first organized the game in his gym class in 1891 was when the first official game was played pro basketball up until that point was relatively unorganized there had been different leagues including one called the nbl uh which i think stands for the national basketball league but it was kind of, it was like, if you've heard about a lot of the major sports leagues back in their early days, like baseball and hockey, there were a bunch of different leagues kind of competing for supremacy. There wasn't a union or anything like that. Uh, that was as powerful as they are today for the, for the players unions. The owners were a lot more unscrupulous. <laughs> it was just uh, a lot it was, of power they held over these players and in all the leagues. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was kind of, uh, the wild west. So what the NBA, what the, uh, those hockey owners did, they tried to start, uh, basically a league that would play in major arenas. Up until that point, games had been played in gymnasiums and like, uh, VFWs and churches and stuff like that. So this is like coming out of the, out of the woodwork and into the, onto the big stage. So 1946, um, Con Smythe sends Frank J. Selke to this meeting. They end up deciding to award Toronto a team in the basketball and the new Basketball Association of America called the BAA. Basically, 1946, uh, and, and Selke and, uh, and Smythe didn't own the team. They were just kind of the representatives. The, the team was actually owned by, uh, let's see here. The names were uh, Eric Gradick, uh, who was also the co-owner of a football team called the Montreal, Montreal Alouettes back then, but it wasn't the same Alouettes. It was just a precursor to... Wow, uh, to, we'll have a huge tie-in to yeah. what I'm going to be talking about later. That's crazy you brought the Alouettes up. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. All this, there's going to be some more small world stuff coming up in, in yeah. towards the end. Uh, but also Harold Shannon and Ben Newman. Uh, so those were the owners of the newfound Toronto Huskies. Um, they played their first game. And before I keep going, I'm going to cite my, uh, my sources an NBA hoops online.com article, which was written by a gentleman by the name of, did I even find it written down? Nope. Uh, but you can find it at NBA hoops online.com, uh, slash article slash first game dot HTML. So that's where you can find that. Whoever wrote that props to you. Very good job. Um, and then we've got uh, the Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, which is like a basically Canada Wikipedia type thing. So, and then one old article that I found in the archives called Queen City Cagers set for pro debut. Toronto Huskies open 60 game schedule with New York Club tomorrow. Uh, and that was October 31st, 1946. So on November 1st, 1946, the Huskies played the very first game in NBA history against who else but the New York Knicks. So um, huh. pretty, pretty cool piece of bar trivia once we get back to the bars where you can ask... Uh, what uh, what teams played the first ever NBA game. And it's kind of an interesting situation because the BAA, basically the NBA claims the BAA as part of its history, but not the NBL. So basically the BAA and the NBL merged in 1949 to become what's now known as the NBA. But the BAA was still technically the NBA back before that happened. Uh, okay. With, one thing I found interesting is with, you know, the Toronto Huskies playing in the first, basically the M, first NBA game, why it took so long for the NBA to get back to Canada. They didn't have teams until the nineties, I guess, because hockey just took over. But <laughs> Yeah. I couldn't figure that out either. That, that was an interesting question. You might, <laughs> there are going to be some quotes coming up where you'll, uh, you might understand maybe Canadians didn't warm up too much to the sport of basketball sure. just because they were so used to hockey already. Um, right. But uh, the roster uh, for the Huskies had a pretty interesting makeup. Uh, there were a few former pro, pro players who had played in the NBL. It was their player coach, Ed Sadowski, who was 6'5", 250 pounds, big boy. Charlie Hoffer, Mike McCarron, Bob Fitzgerald, and Dick Fitzgerald had all played some form of professional basketball before. They also had some college players, George Nostrand, who was the tallest player on the team, Harry Miller, who had played at the University of Wyoming and Seton Hall, Frank Fucarino, and Hank Biasetti. So that was their roster, pretty much half and half, former pros and, and college players. Uh, I believe Sadowski played at Seton Hall too. 
which okay. is interesting just thinking about like where the players came from. Seton Hall is still a basketball school. It was all the way back 60, 70 years ago. University of Wyoming is not known as a basketball school, though. So no, it is not. That's that interesting. Is, I'm well, sure looks, the, he went to Seton Hall also. It looks like Harry Miller. So Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was a uh, kind of an interesting makeup. Um, and also uh, another CFL tie-in, a, a gentleman named Joe Kroll, who was a star for the Toronto Argonauts, worked out for the Huskies but didn't end up making the team. Uh-huh. So they almost had a, a, a cross, one of the earlier, well, not earlier because of Jim Thorpe, but a, a crossover athlete, athlete. The Bo Jackson of their time. Yeah. Almost. Yep. Um, so players were paid $5,000 per season, which is equal to roughly $65,000 today, which is not that bad. I mean, <laughs> 65 grand is not too shabby. Uh, even to, no, in today's, in today's, uh, yeah, I mean, today it's even, it's a livable wage. No question. I don't know if that was Canadian dollars or not. Uh, yeah. Couldn't figure that out, but if it's American dollars, pretty good. Right. Uh, Ed Sadowski was their player coach. Like I mentioned, he would be a, go on to become an all-star playing for the Philadelphia Warriors. He also played for the Celtics later in his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he played, like I said, in the NBL before joining the Huskies. So he was really their, I think their marquee player. Um, and he didn't last there very long. You'll find out in a little bit. Uh, so the first game takes place November 1st at Maple Leaf Gardens. So not only is the first NBA game feature a Canadian team, it's played in Canada, uh, which is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, it uh, really is. It, it featured the Huskies taking on the Knicks. Uh, the Knicks obviously are still in existence, although many of their fans probably wish they <laughs> wouldn't be. Considering they, yeah, they weren't in... If they weren't in New York City, that team might have <laughs> folded up shot by now. They had a gimmick for the first game, which was if you were taller than their tallest player, which was Nostrand at six foot eight inches, uh, you could go to the game for free. There were seven <laughs> there were seven thousand spectators in Maple Leaf Gardens and the Knicks won by two points, sixty-eight to sixty-six. Low scoring. Yeah, low scoring. Compared this might- to these days. Yeah, this might be a reason, though. Back then, so they still apparently had a similar system for converting ice hockey rinks to basketball arenas. So, But they hadn't really perfected the putting the hardwood on top of the ice, so there was a lot of condensation built up, uh, which made the floor slippery. You can oh, also... Man. Yeah, if you if you look back at pictures from from back in that era, you can see the boards are still up. They didn't take down the, the hockey boards, so... Guys must have been breaking ankles left and right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so you can see why the score might not be as high as it is today. Also, today defense doesn't exist in the NBA. So that's um, true. <laughs> but despite the promotions and uh, the first ever NBA game, didn't really create much of a buzz in Canada. Uh, so much so that when the Knicks arrived at the Canadian border to go to Toronto, no one seemed to know who they were. Uh, this is a story. I'm reading the quote directly from one of the articles I had uh, had referenced. In a story retold by Sam Goldaper in NBA Encyclopedia, the Knicks were met by Canadian customs officials at the border who eyed the collection of abnormally tall men and asked, what are you? (laughs) This is so funny. That's like uh, a quote from a really terrible Terminator movie that came out, what was it, 10, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Arnold? No, no, Christian Bale is the the Christian Bale one. Um, He like sees Sam Worthington's character coming out of a river and it's like just very weird forced scene. Not, this isn't a movie podcast, but if you ever, if you've ever seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. I haven't good. seen that Terminator. No, it's not very Didn't good. know that Terminator existed, but 
So the Knicks' Ozzie Schechtman scored the game's first basket and the first basket in NBA league history. Back then, the rules were a little different. There was no there was no three point line. There was no shot clock. Huh. Uh, so I mean, certainly a lot has changed. Did, and did they shoot underhand free throws on? For sure, I bet right? they did. I'm sure. Yeah. I wonder that would be a, a something I also didn't bother to look up. As they, they, I mean, I think that there's no question on that. Granny style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's another quote from Knicks captain Sonny Hertzberg. Uh, it was an interesting. It was interesting playing before Canadians. Recalled Knicks captain Sonny Hertzberg. The fans really didn't understand the game at first. To them, a jump ball was like a face-off in hockey. But they started to catch on and seemed to like the action. So, I mean, I can't blame them. With hockey as a reference point, I can't say I would watch a lot of basketball, but uh, I, and I don't. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's still pretty interesting. It's um, interesting to me though that the games were so both sports were so young in creation at that time. Like, yeah. like that. I don't know. I just it, it, I'm surprised basketball just not not because hockey took over, but it's so popular in Canada. But I'm just surprised that there wasn't they didn't find a footing in Canada at all at that time. Yeah, yeah, it, it's. You would think just it's such an untapped market theoretically that it, that it would have worked out better. Um, yeah. But also the NBA at the time, you think about when they when they expanded into Canada back in the '90s, like the NBA didn't become a global brand and a huge, huge, huge thing until Michael Jordan. Like that's when it really exploded. It was popular wow. in, in America, but like, right. I think that's that's probably why. Like it, it came from very. I guess you'll call it humble beginnings where it was played in like, like I said, gyms and veteran foreign yeah. war places and churches. And like it came and to big stadiums, but it wasn't, it wasn't this global brand like it is today. Right. And to be honest, it didn't really take off in Canada in the nineties either. I mean, one of the teams moved to Memphis. Yeah. And, and, I, and if Vince Carter didn't play in Toronto, who knows yeah. if the, how the Raptors <laughs> would be right now. And who knows what they'd be called. I'm going to get that to that at the end sure. as well. There's definitely, okay. there's some tie in, but there is certainly, like I said, some, some, uh, unsuccessful basketball played in their only year of existence. They folded after, uh, after their first season in which they finished 22 and 38 tied for last place with the Boston Celtics, that a team whose fortunes would turn around very quickly in the NBA after that. Yeah. Uh, the Huskies lost a hundred thousand dollars in their only season, all of its owner's money. So they folded. But mm -hmm. in the time, in the just single year of existence, um, there was a, a lot of crossover into different sports and, and a lot of kind of interesting historical facts that you might not know about, about a team that only existed for a year. Uh, the first one is that Sadowski, the star player and player coach, left the team after three weeks because he didn't get along. It sounded like the players kind of didn't get along. There, uh, one of the articles I read there said there were a bunch of cliques that formed on the team and Sadowski left. So they had to look for a new coach. That new coach not only has connections to my hometown and uh, oh. my childhood, but also uh, connections to Major League Baseball uh, and college basketball. So the Huskies... Okay hired a gentleman named Red Rolf as their new coach. Rolf is from Penacook, New Hampshire, uh, hmm. played baseball at Dartmouth in my hometown of Hanover. Right, right. Then he played for the Yankees. He won a, at least one World Series with the Yankees. After his baseball career, he coached basketball at Yale um, before being hired uh, as the replacement coach for Sadowski uh, on the Huskies. So Interesting. Yeah, crazy. So then he later went back after that and coached the Detroit Tigers and then worked as Dartmouth's athletic director. 
And uh, the baseball field that I used, uh, the Dartmouth baseball field is named Red Roll Field. And that's where I used to go baseball camp when I was uh, uh, a little kid. So um, quite the connection. Yeah. I, I've always wondered why it was called Red. I always thought it was funny as a kid, like <laughs> Red Roll, Rolf. I was like, <laughs> he I got a, a distant relative. <laughs> no, not a, yeah, he, I mean, it's German, but I don't think he's one of my, uh, I oh, think okay. Rolf is a German last name, but he's certainly not related to me, but still like red Rolf field just sounded funny to me, but knowing that's that, cool. I, it, I mean, that's in New Hampshire history, you don't hear a lot about red Rolf, but that's a pretty baller resume. If I say so myself, world oh, series yeah. champion, major league baseball player, professional basketball coach of the first team in NBA history. One no of the question. first teams like, yeah. uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and it kind of also, uh, it was kind of like the previous episode that I talked about, uh, the blades were a team that had such a short history included someone so legendary and impactful in the world of sports. And, and the, like I told you, uh, the blades had Willie O'Ree who broke the NHL's color barrier. So, uh, right. it's interesting how these teams can have such a short lifespan, but really have, personalities on their rosters or coaching them that are just so legendary. Yeah. And they see and just how they shaped even the current landscape. Absolutely. And that current landscape was definitely shaped by the Toronto Huskies. So when the Toronto Raptors came back to the NBA, what was that? 96, 95, 95. Yeah, I believe so. So they were called the Raptors. They got a lot of crap for uh, their little Raptor logo and their dinosaur. And I mean, without Vince Carter, like you said, they might not be around today either. 2009, they wore the Huskies throwback jersey, which was like, yeah, it was like a blue jersey. Just said Toronto on it, I think. And they wore it again, 2013, I think. Uh, And there was actually an online, I found the website, there was an online campaign called Bring Back the Huskies. So they wanted to change the Raptors name to the Huskies, uh, to the Huskies back then. And even when I think the team was invented, that was one of the names they were considering. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, no chance of that happening now. No, yeah, now that they've won a, uh, now that they've won a title, and the, the website is called TorontoHuskies.org. If you want to visit it, it's kind of old and janky. Sure. For 2009, but uh, it's, uh, it was interesting that they wanted to change the name of the Toronto Huskies. But like you said, now that they won a title, first Canadian team to win a, uh, an NBA championship, there is no, there's no way they're going to change it to the Huskies. <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, but as recent as uh, 2013, this is another hockey, kind of hockey crossover. Um, Tim Lawicki, who was the former Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment president, uh, yeah. said that he would consider a name change. Obviously, this is before the title, but uh, uh, they were close, I think, to becoming the Huskies again, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, so, I think he he ended up in uh, – He's in with Seattle. the Seattle Kraken now, I think. There's another, maybe. He's got a brother. So I figured this out when I was looking uh, him up because I wanted to figure out how to pronounce his name. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a Todd Lewicki. That might be the Raptors guy. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, that might be the Kraken guy. So Todd, his his younger brother, is currently the chief executive officer and president of the future Seattle Kraken hockey team. Okay. Um, but Tim looks like his his current group. I don't know what the Oakview group is, maybe a venture capital a group. Uh, mm-hmm. They have something to do with the season ticket drive or season ticket sales of the Kraken. So he's both, he's part of oh. kind of related to the Kraken. Um, but Tim's daughter, so Tim's, 
Tim's uh, son-in-law is Troy Bodie, who used to play for the Ducks. And uh, I actually met once at a Ducks game in the press box. A super nice guy. So shout out to Troy Bodie. Nobody cares in this podcast. Small (laughs) world. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, yeah, small world. Uh, But yeah, that's the story of the Toronto Huskies. Quite a story. And uh, there are are a couple connections actually to the team I'm about to talk about. The Baltimore Stallions. Let's go right into it. Uh, the Canadian Football League was founded in 1958 with teams based just based in Canada. Um, so the, the Grey Cup was what they compete for um, in in the league. That's the championship trophy, and that had been had has some deep roots as well. But I think they started competing for that in like 1909 or something like that. But like like you talked about, um, they they didn't really get organized. To, like like the NBA till about 1958. You know, this league's been around for a very long time, but in an effort to gain a further audience in 1993, the league expanded to the U.S., which hardly anyone knows probably in the U.S., but uh, I'm sure many Canadians remember. Oh, they might have forgotten by now. Did they pick, too, but, so um, you sent me a list of the other teams. Yeah. They, it looks like they specifically picked cities that did not have uh, – did not have any NFL franchises, right? Because I'm sure the NFL has some sort of agreement. Right. Yeah. So the, the lead, the U S experiment, U S experiment lasted from about 1993 to 1995. So there were six franchises that competed at different times that included the Sacramento gold miners who moved to San Antonio after two years to become the Texans the Las Vegas Posse, the Shreveport Pirates, which is a tongue twister, uh, the Birmingham Barracudas, the Memphis Mad Dogs, and the Baltimore CFL Colts. Um, they, they were called originally, and that na- name would later be t- called uh, changed to the Baltimore Stallions. Obviously. So going back to the t- so the the team that moved from uh, Sacramento to San uh, to to Texas was that it? Yeah, um, they were the Texans in the CFL, or do they? They were yes in the CFL. So uh-huh. they were called the San Antonio Texans, and I believe they had they lasted one year. Yeah, that's. I'd be curious to hear how that. So when did it? So the because the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee in the NFL, and then right. that then the expansion team in Houston became the Texans in the NFL, but that was like. 2000 yeah that was way after after this uh cfl experiment but i wonder if they if the nfl team jacked the cfl name i mean texas is a pretty great name yeah it's not i mean it's not super original but it's also pretty good i mean yeah (laughs) it's the same thing as canucks or canadians right right (laughs) yankees too yep (laughs) so the 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 team in baltimore was on the the owner was calling them the baltimore cfl colts to start. So basically none of these U S teams besides the Baltimore stallions were successful at all. Um, they all had financial issues. And, you know, as I said, um, once some of the, I think the Vegas team lasted like a year out of the three years. And there was some other problem like Shreveport struggled terribly financially. So this team was known, as I said, as the Baltimore CFL Colts. they were, they were owned by uh, Jim Sparrow. Uh, the, the NFL 
soon actually sued <laughs> this this franchise uh, because of the name. Um, the Indianapolis Colts, who played in Baltimore from 1990, uh, I'm sorry, 1953 to 1983. So the NFL ended up suing them for this name because <laughs> they didn't want any confusion. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really, are you going to be that confused? Like it's like right. they don't even play in the same league. <laughs> right. So as I said, the NFL sued the Baltimore uh, CFL franchise. And then, you know, the franchise decided obviously not to fight the NFL over the team's name. And they were called the Baltimore football club. And then often they were called the Baltimore CFLers too. <laughs> so this team was nicknamed these two names, but they were also called, well, also also referred to as a, a team without a name. This team without a name had a ton of success in their first year, compiling a record in the regular season of 12 and six, fish, finishing second in the CFL's East Division. The 12 and six record set a CFL expansion team record. Um, they were led by CFL legend, Mike Pringle. Uh, he led the team at running back. Pringle was the leading rusher um, in his first year with with the um, the unknown team, unknown name team. Do you know what um, college he went to? Uh, he he went to two schools. One was in California. I can't remember the schools, but I know he transferred. Let's um, see. He went to. Uh, he was only five nine. He was a Cal State guy. Fullerton, and uh-huh. then uh, let's see, blah blah blah. College uh, Washington State, and then Cal State Fullerton. Okay, so he ended up at Cal State Fullerton. Oh, uh, then he, yeah, yep, that's where he finished. Okay, well, in in this year in the CFL, he actually broke a record for rushing with one thousand nine hundred and seventy two yards. So he had a huge year, and. Uh, this team with no name ended up making the CFL's Grey Cup final, losing just barely 26-23 to the BC Lions in their first year. So really, really successful first year. Um, in, in the next year, the, the franchise was still being referred to as the Baltimore Football Club or a team with no name, basically. And with one, within one, one week into the season, a fan poll decided that the team would be named the Baltimore Stallions. So I, I don't really understand why they couldn't figure that out in like preseason. <laughs> well, same reason why the Washington formerly Redskins are now the Washington football club. It's like, right. who knows? Maybe it was a, it was an FU type thing to the lead. Like it's just, you never know, but it, it it's happening now in the NFL. So it's not that crazy. Yeah, true. Yeah. That's yeah. Good correlation. There. Um, like the 1994 season, the Stallions dominated on the field, finishing with a record of 15-3. and three. Um, The Stallions were led by quarterback Tracy Hamm and once again running back Mike Pringle. Pringle, although he didn't rush for as many yards as, as he did in 94, was named CFL's most outstanding player for that season in 1995. Uh, Pringle and the Stallions cruised through the playoffs making CFL's um, Grey Cup final facing off with CFL legend uh, Doug Flutie, as oh, we all know. Flutie's the Cal- Yeah, <laughs> and the Calgary Stampeders, former uh, Buffalo Bills quarterback. Who else did he play for in the NFL? Patriots. 
Yes. He, uh, early he, on. Early no, on. No, uh, he came back. Like, he was one of Brady's backups. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, right around the maybe 09, 10, around then. I think it was right after right after the they lost their perfect season. But he, he like, kicked a field goal or something. I, I know <laughs> I'm getting he really? and Vinny Testaverde confused, but uh, one of the oh, two of them kicked a field goal. Well, he – I, I picture him in a Chargers uniform too. Yeah, he played for the Chargers, I think. Yeah. Well, anyway, he had a great football career. Mm-hmm. Um, can't no denying that. I mean, he was great for the Bills. Um, and not so good for the Patriots early in his career. That's probably why he went to the CFL. I'm guessing. You there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, oh. I just I didn't I don't know much about Flutie's first stint with the Patriots. Oh, but okay. The Patriots okay. sucked for a long time, so he probably yeah. was part of, part of that suckage. Yeah, I think he was terrible with the Patriots, and that's why he ended up in the Canadian Football League. But uh, anyways, he played for the Calgary Stampeders at that time. This, as, as a CFL fan, or if there's any CFL fans out there, he the Calgary Stampeders were excellent at that time for that league. So the Stall- the Stallions outplayed the Stampeders winning 37 to 20 to become the first American to- team to win the Grey Cup. The wow. amazing thing was this team was very popular in Baltimore and they drew more than 30,000 fans per game in 2 years. Do you know what their what factors were part of their popularity like why what what made them so, I mean, such a big draw? Well, I, I think, you know, Baltimore, we've always talked about Baltimore getting an NFL team back. And I think they the, the, the Colts were very popular when they left. And I, I'm not sure what the stipulations of them leaving Baltimore in 83, but um, I think it's always been a football market. And, you know, they proved that they wanted football back, at least, you know, some sort of football. Yeah, um, averaging thirty thousand fans per game. Well, the their uh, the original Baltimore Colts Colts like exit from Baltimore was really controversial because they they basically loaded everything up in a truck. I think they kept it secret from fans. There's a very good thirty for thirty about it. Oh, okay. where they they basically kept one. it secret from the fan base. The owner did loaded everything up into a truck overnight and just they just disappeared to in Indianapolis. Even I, I yeah. feel like that would be something done in like fifty three, but. No, it's it's a it was a touchy subject, I think, for wow. for Baltimore football fans. Oh, huh. I'll look more into that. That's interesting. Um, so, so they won this great cup, and it, you know they were getting thirty thousand fans a game, averaging that, and their celebration was completely short lived. Um, so this team, as I said, was popular there, and. Um, it be, the, having them there though in Baltimore was unsustainable um, for a, a long time. You know, team to be there because a Cleveland Browns owner, um, Art Modell, uh, decided to move his franchise to Baltimore. The Cleveland Browns moved to Baltimore, which, as we know, was highly was a highly controversial decision at the time. Um, kind of left Cleveland high and dry. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a team back, so that's great. They probably, like the Knicks fans, also wish their team, <laughs> they wouldn't have a team back. <laughs> right, right, yeah. 
they definitely have struggled. Um, so hopefully they'll be better this year, but we'll see. Um, so the teams, you know, they, they had a celebration parade that, uh, for winning this, winning the great cup. And, you know, the announcement was made that the NFL was coming back to Baltimore. Um, so they had about 200 fans at their, their parade, their victory parade. Oh, that's sad. But the, so their success, you said you were telling me was part of the reason why the NFL thought they could come back to Baltimore, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think that, you know, they were seeing these large crowds and like there was a hunger for, you know, um, another sport besides baseball in the Baltimore area. And it's proven to be a good, you know, match for the NFL and, you know, the Baltimore Ravens in the city. And the, the timing was actually pretty good because now that you mentioned baseball, I th- was there the strike was in 94, right? There was no baseball. The, yeah. Their the yeah. baseball season was canceled. So I imagine right. that that was uh, helpful for the Stallions to get more fans. And I mean, probably helpful for the NFL overall to kind of really flip the switch and become that league that <laughs> the, basically America's sport now, not baseball. Uh, right. So yeah, that's interesting. Good timing for them, I guess. Right. And, you know, for, yeah, but it wasn't such good timing for yeah. the, the Stallions franchise. So they ended up moving to uh, Montreal, Quebec, Canada, um, and were named the Montreal Alouettes. Oh, just like from uh, the Husky story. The, right. Uh, I told you there was a tie-in. Yeah. I wonder a couple if times. That, uh, so they, they probably adopted the name. Um, that's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. So a lot of the players, including uh, Mike Pringle, ended up moving with the franchise and he went on to be, um, as I said, a CFL legend. So did he um, ever did he ever make the NFL? I think he was on a couple practice squads like he had the opportunities, but just didn't pan out for him. Um, And, you know, he's a well-known name in Canada now, so. I think he did pretty well for himself. Yeah. And going, go, speaking of practice squads and, and breaking into the NFL and all that stuff, I lo- I'm looking up Doug Flutie. He never uh-huh. played, I forgot about this. He never played for the pay. Pa- oh, he did play for the Patriots, 87 to 89. But he, before that, played for a USL, USFL team called the New Jersey Generals. Then he played for the Bears. Then he played for the Patriots. And then he oh. went to the CFL. <laughs> and then he went, let's see. What a career. Yeah, 96-97 was his last year, or 97 was his last year in Toronto. And then he did went Bills for two years, Chargers for three years, Patriots for a year. So um, pretty uh, – so he was there. He was with the Patriots in 05, so he must have won a Super Bowl with them. We're getting huh. off track now, but – Yes, uh, <laughs> we are. No, but yeah, he uh, – Flutie was, you know, obviously had a great career, but he definitely – Played well. He played in two different leagues. Well, three different leagues. You said USFL or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he definitely made some stops in his career. Yeah. Um, getting back to the Stallions, um, as I said, they moved to uh, Montreal and were renamed the Alouettes. Um, before they, you know, before they left Baltimore, the the fans for just diminished. So, you know, it was just not a market for two football teams, but one thing that was pretty cool when they were there, the two years, the stallions averaged in 1994, they averaged 37,447 fans a game, which for that year was first in the CFL. And then in 95, the attendance dipped a little bit, but they were second in the league. Damn. 
so yeah, they were very popular there. So it was pretty talk, cool. Talk about taking over, like joining the Canadian Football League as an American team, and all of a sudden the most popular, second most popular team in the league. That's uh, yeah, pretty hefty. It just shows you how popular um, football is in some markets, and well, basically every market in the U.S. <laughs> and you know, and you got to remember these fans were coming out. The Canadian Football League has different rules, you know. So these fans were, in a way, watching a different different game. Yeah, so, got to give them credit too. They just wanted football, <laughs> right? Uh, so the franchise in Baltimore, the CFL franchise in Baltimore was obviously short-lived but they did have a regular season record of 27 and 9 along with two great cup appearances in two years I mean good Good. kind of a model franchise for lasting two years (laughs) yeah and probably one of the best expansion teams in any sport I mean right it has to be yeah that's Vegas Golden Knights maybe yeah Yep, that's that's a, basically the the hockey equivalent. Although they never won a, a championship, or I mean, never they're still in existence, and they're they're only two right. seasons, three seasons old. So, uh, yeah, might win this year. We'll see. Yeah, and then my sources included um, there was a great article um, called "25 Years Ago the Baltimore Stallions Ruled the CFL," and it was by um, I couldn't find the author, but it says by the Associated Press. Oh yeah, AP Wire. Yep. And then um, my other source was uh, CFL facts, figures, records from 94, 96, and 98. Awesome. Well, that's a great, great story. Definitely going to continue this podcast and, and it just gives us ideas. Like we cover so many teams from like USFL teams to WHA teams to just really everything. There's so many disappeared you'll call them or non no longer in existence professional sports franchises that uh tune in for many more episodes (laughs) right and like anthony was saying there's so many teams in the current uh landscape that um have connections to teams that no one's ever heard of yeah it's it's (laughs) it's pretty cool I, i i it's one of the more interesting things i think that that's fun to talk about andrew you got anything you're working on any uh anything coming up you want to promote anything uh nothing i'm currently working on right now um i do write um on a weekly basis for a fantasy a daily fantasy sports uh website called roto baller awesome and what sports do you cover on that um i'm just covering hockey currently there you go. So if you want any daily fantasy advice, check out Andrew's articles on Roto Baller. Um, and I'm just still writing for the hockey writers. I'm appearing every so often on Totally Offsides podcast, for, uh, which is an Anaheim Ducks podcast. And check, you can check out my blog. I'll post some blog posts on occasion on theplaymakerblog.com. Uh, but yeah, and you can find me at Deli Tweets. It's D-E-L-L-I-T-W-E-E-T-S. And Andrew, what's your Twitter handle? Um, at A-W-L-E-N-N. Sounds good. All right, guys. Till next episode. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, thank you. Have a great night. (laughs) 